0: Hello everyone and welcome to Multidisciplinary Dialogue, Clinical Rounds, and Case Reviews with your host, Dr. Anil Harrison, who is the Program Director and Chair of the Internal Medicine Residency Program at the University of Central Florida and HCA Florida West Hospital in Pensacola, Florida. Today, Dr. Harrison and Dr. Paul Shu will discuss the management of patients with hypertension. Dr. Xu is an internal medicine resident at St. Joseph's Medical Center in Stockton, California. The views of the speakers are their own and do not reflect the views of their respective institutions or the views of Consultant 360.
1: Good morning, folks. We're back again for part two of our hypertensive series. Last time we were talking about hypertension, specifically the how we measure hypertension, the uh, proper procedure, the indications for 24-hour automated monitoring, as well as an organ damage or sequelae as a result of uncontrolled hypertension, as Dr. Harrison illustrated for us all. So Dr. Harrison, how are you doing this morning? I am doing well, Paul. Thank you. It's a beautiful day. The birds are chirping outside. We have our hot coffee. I think we've had too, too much of the coffee. Maybe. You can hear it in my voice, right? Speaking of hypertension, caffeine <laughs> intake, folks. All right, Dr. Harrison, without further ado, we, uh,
0: would you please tell us how you evaluate a patient with newly diagnosed hypertension? Yeah, absolutely, Paul. So this would include a thorough history and physical while establishing if there is a family history of hypertension in the patient, Are there any reversible causes? Could there be a secondary cause for high blood pressure? And very importantly, conduct an ASCVD risk score, taking into consideration other risk factors for cardiovascular disease. It is also important to assess if there is any end organ damage and to identify any potential barriers to lifestyle modifications for lowering a person's blood pressure. I would recommend getting some baseline labs like a CBC, a serum creatinine with a GFR, a serum sodium and a potassium, and a serum bicarb. Uh, I would also get a hemoglobin A1c, a TSH, and of course a lipid panel. I would also get a urine analysis with, with microscopy looking obviously for protein, RBCs, and costs. If the patient is a diabetic, I would get a spot urine-albumin-creatinine ratio, also called ACR.
1: Wait, 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 wait. Would you get an electrocardiogram, too? Uh,
0: yes, I would to see if the patient might have LVH or left ventricular hypertrophy or a previous silent myocardial infarction.
1: Okay, now you have piqued my interest. What about an echocardiogram? would you get that?
0: Uh, it isn't necessary, Paul. Now, I would recommend getting an echo if the EKG shows left ventricular hypertrophy or the patient might have had, uh, you know, an MI in the past. And I would think about getting an echocardiogram if you have somebody with white coat hypertension, which is that the patient's blood pressure measured at home is normal. However, it is elevated consistently in the physician's office. Or while examining, uh, while doing a cardiac exam, you know, the apex is displaced on palpation, or if one hears an LV S4 or an S4 gallop on auscultation. So, those would be uh, good reasons for getting an echocardiogram. So, we already
1: touched upon um, the sequelae of uncontrolled hypertension mm-hmm. in our prior episode. So, this might seem like a silly question, but have there been studies actually done, conclusive studies, which reveal the benefits of actually treating
0: hypertension? Oh, absolutely, Paul. Clinical trials suggest that antihypertensive medication therapy can be associated with up to a 40% reduction in stroke, a 25% reduction in myocardial infarction, and a 50% reduction in heart failure. Also, Hypertension is one of the most significant but modifiable risk factor for cardiovascular disease, stroke, end-stage kidney disease, and overall mortality. And remember, systolic blood pressure is more important than diastolic blood pressure as an independent risk factor for coronary events, heart failure, stroke, and end-stage renal disease. So, Dr. Harrison,
1: how common is secondary hypertension and when would you consider evaluating for secondary causes of hypertension?
0: Absolutely. So, secondary hypertension occurs in about 10% of adults with hypertension. A specific and remediable cause can be identified. Diagnostic testing for secondary causes of hypertension can be pursued if a high clinical suspicion exists following a history, a good history, a good physical exam, and initial laboratory testing. Evaluations for secondary causes of hypertension include, say, if a person has hypertension before the age of 30, or has an abrupt onset or worsening blood pressure if previously well controlled, or the patient has drug-resistant hypertension, or has clinical features indicating a secondary process, or has presence of target organ damage, which is disproportionate to hypertension duration or severity. Similarly, diastolic hypertension, especially if it occurs after the age of 65, and if you notice somebody has unprovoked or excessive hypokalemia, I would also consider looking for secondary causes for hypertension if the degree of hypertension or blood pressure does not correlate well with the findings of end organ damage.
1: Would you recommend taking lifestyle changes? And what exactly do you mean by that?
0: Yeah. So lifestyle modifications and cardiovascular risk factors should be addressed in all patients with uh, hypertension. Several non-pharmacological interventions have been shown to have efficacy in reducing blood pressure. Evidence shows that the most efficacious interventions for blood pressure lowering effects are number one, weight loss. Number two, the dietary approach to stop hypertension, which is the DASH diet, and number three, dietary sodium reduction. Having said that, weight reduction is the most efficacious, followed by sodium reduction uh, when it comes to lifestyle modifications. Although difficult to achieve, a combination of lifestyle modifications, such as the DASH diet combined with the low-salt diet alone, or in combination with weight loss, has blood pressure-lowering effects that are much greater than or equal to those of a single drug therapy in patients with hypertension. Other effective non-pharmacological interventions include potassium supplementation, preferably in your diet, increased physical activity, abstinence of or moderation in alcohol consumption, and regardless of effects on blood pressure, tobacco cessation should be encouraged Given that smoking is a significant risk factor for cardiovascular disease, studies evaluating meditation, yoga, and biofeedback had modest, mixed, or no consistent blood pressure lowering effects. Uh, More data support efficacy of device-guided breathing than acupuncture among the non-invasive procedures and devices that were evaluated.
1: So as you alluded to, Dr. Harrison, with blood pressures consistently greater than systolic of 130 and a diastolic of 80 with Mm -hmm. ASCVD score greater than 10% and with stage 2 hypertension classified as blood pressures uh, consistently increasing. How would you go about management of hypertension?
0: Sure, you're absolutely right on that, uh, Paul. The first line medications for management of hypertension are ACE inhibitors or ARBs, which stands for angiotensin receptor blockers, thiazide diuretics, and the dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers such as amlodipine. So those are the four first-line antihypertensives. Beta blockers can be considered as first-line, especially if the patient has a history of coronary artery disease or congestive heart failure. For the prevention of heart failure, initial therapy with a thiazide diuretic was more effective than a calcium channel blocker or an ACE inhibitor. And an ACE inhibitor was more effective than a calcium channel blocker. The initial antihypertensive should include a thiazide diuretic or a calcium channel blocker. Now you can use loop diuretics. Loop diuretics are preferred in patients with symptomatic heart failure or CKD, who have a GFR of less than 30. Even in the absence of edema, persistent intravascular expansion without any apparent edema can still contribute to hypertension that appears resistant to treatment. Potassium-sparing diuretics such as aldosterone receptor antagonists, spironolactone, or eplerinol or epithelial sodium channel blockers such as amiloride, are weaker diuretics. Additionally, short-acting nifedipine can be associated with increased mortality if used immediately after an acute MI because of profound hypotension and sympathetic activation. Finally, there may be an increased risk of myopathy if a calcium channel blocker especially a non-dihydropyridine, is used concomitantly with a hydrostatin. We don't have uh, enough trials comparing beta blockers with central or peripheral acting alpha blockers, vasodilators, aldosterone receptor antagonists, or loop diuretics to the four drug classes mentioned before. Therefore, these drug classes are not recommended as first-line therapy, but can be used in specific populations, such as beta blockers for post-myocardial infarction or if a patient has heart failure, aldosterone receptor blockers for folks who have heart failure, loop diuretics for advanced kidney disease, or as an add-on for resistant hypertension. The 2017 ACC AHA blood pressure guideline recommends combination therapy with two first-line antihypertensive drugs of different classes for adults with stage two hypertension and an average of greater than 20 10 millimeters mercury above their blood pressure target, which is typically 150 over 90 millimeters of mercury. Response to treatment should be assessed in a month. Generally, there is diminishing return in blood pressure lowering if the dose is titrated up 50 to 100% of maximum. The other thing I'd like to mention is it is unlikely that increasing the dose from 50 to 100% of maximum on a blood pressure medication will result in an additional greater than five millimeter blood pressure reduction. Sounds like a
1: classic case of admission return. So with that being said, what are some targets for good blood pressure control? And then we can elaborate on the terms hypertension and resistant hypertension, as well as any specific labs recommended when the patient is on antihypertensive?
0: Absolutely. So the target systolic blood pressure goal for non-institutionalized ambulatory, community dwelling patients should, who are more than 65 years of age should be less than 130 millimeters of mercury. The target blood pressure for patients with hypertension and diabetes or somebody who has chronic kidney disease should be less than 130 over 80. Studies evaluating meditation, yoga, and feed, biofeedback, I think we've already discussed that, we've had inconsistent results with those. The prevalence of white coat hypertension is about 15 to 30%. Screening ECHO may also be considered to screen for left ventricular hypertrophy, the presence of which necessitates treatment with antihypertensives. Uh, you asked about resistant hypertension. Resistant hypertension is defined as blood pressure that remains above goal despite concurrent use of three antihypertensive agents of different classes or a blood pressure at goal but requiring four or more medications one of these medications must be a diuretic now what is the prevalence the prevalence for resistant hypertension is from 2 to 10% in the general population but can be as high as 40% in folks who have chronic renal disease other risk factors include older age male sex black race, diabetes, a person who has a higher BMI, and trials support the efficacy of adding a low-dose aldosterone receptor antagonist, either uh, spironolactone or eplerinone for the treatment of resistant hypertension. If additional agents are needed for blood pressure control or the patient is intolerant of the agents mentioned before, then using vasodilators such as hydralazine or minoxidil or um, Alpha blockers such as prazosin or doxazosin or even centrally acting sympathetic agonists such as clonidine could be added. The recommendations are that kidney function and serum potassium should be assessed two to three weeks after the initiation of an ACE inhibitor or an ARB. An increase in the serum creatinine of 25 to 30% is acceptable, but the dose may need to be lowered or medication discontinued if more severe decline in kidney function is observed, in such cases, one wants to consider could this patient have bilateral renovascular disease?
1: So now we're talking about renovascular disease, some mention of it. Would you be able to also speak about some of the causes of secondary hypertension, such as the aforementioned renovascular hypertension, primary hyperaldosteronism, and pheochromocytoma?
0: Yeah, absolutely, Paul. So the clinical suspicion might arise. You might start thinking, especially in folks who have severe hypertension after the age of 55, or who have recurrent flash pulmonary edema, or who have refractory heart failure, or who develop an AKI, an acute renal injury insufficiency after initiation of an ACE inhibitor or an ARB, or an acute kidney insufficiency after control of blood pressure to target, Similarly, on imaging, if one notices asymmetry in the kidneys of more than 1.5 centimeters, or if one of the kidneys is less than 9 centimeters, should also increase the likelihood. Similarly, abrupt onset of hypertension at an age less than 35 might suggest fibromuscular dysplasia. Having said that, routine testing for renovascular disease may not change management because, as you know, recent data suggests that medical therapy may be as beneficial as uh, invasive procedures, especially for those with atherosclerotic renovascular disease.
1: Uh, less is more, less is more. So with that being said, when is less not more? When, is, uh, when do we need to bring
0: out some surgical intervention,
1: especially in the setting of renovascular hypertension?
0: Absolutely. So, you know, the recommendations are that if you've got a stenosis that is more than 75% in one or both renal arteries, or there is a greater than 50% post stenotic dilatation, that suggests the diagnosis. And percutaneous angioplasty and stenting or surgical intervention include those with a short hypertension duration or with atherosclerotic renovascular disease that is refractory to optimal medical therapy. Or if somebody has severe hypertension or recurrent acute flash pulmonary edema, or somebody develops an acute renal insufficiency following treatment with an ACE or an ARB, or somebody who has progressive impaired kidney function thought to result from bilateral renovascular disease or unilateral stenosis affecting a solitary functioning kidney. The other thing is that patients with advanced CKD who have a proteinuria of more than a gram in 24 hours, are less likely to benefit from revascularization. With primary hyperaldo or hyperaldosteronism, aldosterone production can cannot be suppressed with sodium loading is the most common cause of secondary hypertension in middle-aged adults and an important cause for resistant hypertension. In a triad of resistant hypertension, metabolic alkalosis, and hypokalemia including, by the way, in patients treated with low-dose thiazide diuretics should raise suspicion. And the recommendations are that you s- screening is recommended if any of the following are present. Somebody who has resistant hypertension, hypokalemia, be it spontaneous, or if a person is on a diuretic, it doesn't matter. Incidentally, discovered adrenal mass or somebody who has a family history of early onset hypertension, or somebody who has moderately severe hypertension, which is a blood pressure greater than 160 over 100, or somebody who's had a stroke before the age of 40. So in those, you know, getting plasma aldosterone and a plasma renin levels are usually, you do that because uh, these are usually suppressed in other disorders with hypokalemia and hypertension, including Cushing syndrome, syndrome of apparent mineralocorticoid excess, familial hyper hyperaldosteronism type one and little syndrome. But in folks where you suspect primary hyperaldosteronism, the ratio of aldosteron to renin is very high and it's usually greater than 20 is to one. And after the diagnosis is confirmed, a dedicated adrenal CT should be performed to determine whether the hyperaldosteronism is caused by diffuse hyperplasia as seen in about uh, 75% of the patients. And managed by an aldosterone receptor antagonist, such as spironolactone versus an aldosterone producing adenoma, which is amenable to surgical resection.
1: As of all good things, they must come to an end. We are concluding episode two of our hypertensive podcast. Please tune in for episode three of the hypertensive podcast series with Dr. Harrison and me. We really do appreciate your support. We're about uh, starting our second chapter Uh, soon to be a third chapter in the coming weeks. Thank you, everyone.
0: Thank you, Paul. Before I end, I just want to mention one thing. One of the residents asked me this question. uh, How would you uh, evaluate for primary hyperaldosteronism in a patient who's already taking an ACE inhibitor or an ARB? So I think in this scenario, getting a serum renin level would be helpful because if the serum renin level is elevated, primary hyperaldosteronism can be safely ruled out. But I just wanted to mention that. Uh, Thank you, everybody. Bye.
1: Bye Bye-bye, guys. Thank you.